Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast today. Our guest today is Professor Tom Woods, an, a prolific author in Austrian economics and a very active online presence, uh, worked with the Mises Institute and has published an enormous number of works on uh, Bitcoin Austrian economics. He also has his own podcast 
and he also runs his own um, educational institute online education so um, Tom and I share quite a lot uh, in this regard we're all doing the same things and in fact we also share the fact that we both went to Columbia University that's where Tom did his uh, PhD was it your PhD or your undergraduate you did there it was PhD what, what, what years were you there I was there uh, long after you. I was there 2004 to 2009. Uh, I left in 1999. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So you did your PhD in history in Colombia, right? I did. Yeah. I did mine in uh, sustainable development. Um, but, you know, as you can imagine, uh, uh, listeners, uh, Colombia is not exactly the most uh, hospitable place for people who uh, think about um, things like Austrian economics, like Tom and I. And um, after that, Tom has, I, I must say, you know, it's, it's not purely coincidence uh, that we have, we do similar things. It's uh, very uh, largely also due to inspiration. I've looked at him and always wanted to copy him. When I wanted to grow up, I wanted to be Tom Woods. I remember when I first started getting into Austrian economics, I'd wanted to write and I always would get ideas about something that I would want to write, and then Tom Woods would have a book about it already. And I'd read the book, and it's already there, and there's just basically nothing for me to add. I remember Meltdown. Like, I thought maybe it might be worth writing something about that, but then you published Meltdown before I could get a draft uh, (laughs) written out and saved me the trouble. Um, So I'm very happy to be talking to Woods today. He's had me on his podcast before, but now I have him here. So welcome. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you. So I guess to begin with, can you tell us a little bit more about your background, how you got into Austrian economics? How do you go from Colombia to Austrian economics? The question everybody always asks me, let's ask it to you today. Right. Well, I was already into it before I got to Columbia. I, I guess I grew up, I was all wrong on so many things when I was younger, but that's true of so many of us, right? When I was in high school, I knew I was not a left liberal and I knew I was not a communist. But other than that, I was all confused. So I, I, I guess I thought of myself as belonging to the U.S. Republican Party. And so I would make excuses for every crazy and idiotic thing they did. And as time went on, I decided, especially once I went to undergrad, I was actually at Harvard undergrad, and there there was a lot of craziness in that town, Cambridge, Massachusetts. There were were literal communists selling a communist newspaper outside the dining hall at the college, and I would engage with them. I just couldn't believe these people existed, and it radicalized me to the point where I decided, look, either I have principles or I don't. I'm either going to be all or nothing. Uh, if, if I believe in private property, I'm going to believe it the whole way. So I was inclined to think, uh, you know, I want, whatever these people are, I want to be the opposite. And so what began to happen was I started to attend uh, different libertarian events that I would find out about through ads in magazines. That's This is the early 1990s. I'd find out about them through ads in magazines. So the Institute for Humane Studies and then the Mises Institute has the Mises University summer program. And for that, I just – I knew a little bit about what Austrian economics was, but not a whole lot. And they give you a lot of readings to prepare for the event. I read everything cover to cover. I was ready to go. I spent a week. I met Murray Rothbard. And after that, I was just a goner. Like, this is this is for me. So that was kind of where I got my, my feet wet. And then I went to Columbia. Columbia is even more uh, inhospitable 
<laughs> as of place, but I was busy with my my graduate work, so that was okay. But the 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 consolation is that when you're at an elite school and you believe things that are out of the mainstream, the 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 consolation is all the books you might be curious to read are all just sitting collecting dust on the shelf. You never have any problem with the books being checked out. No one's checking the books out. You can get any book you want anytime you want. Yeah. I guess it's kind of similar in my case, um, but I, I, in my case, no, I did not go to Columbia uh, knowing about Austrian economics. I'm, so I wonder why is it that you chose to go to Columbia um, if you were interested in Austrian economics? So was it that you wanted to do this because you wanted to become an academic or um, was well, it just intellectual I mean, I curiosity? I am primarily a historian. Um, so I don't have degrees in economics. I'm self-taught when it comes to economics. I wanted to be a, a, an academic. That's right. I wanted to be a, hist- a history professor. And at that time, Columbia had the number two history department in the country. And Harvard, where I was, had might have had the number one. But the problem was I was a 20th century guy, and all their 20th century people were on sabbatical. And I, well, how am I going to have a dissertation director if, you know, if it's unclear? And also, they they had openings. People had left. and their 20th century department was in shambles. So the number two department for me was the number one department, basically. So uh, Columbia seemed like the place to go. I see. And uh, so then you did your PhD in Columbia. Then um, um, what happened um, that saved you from the path of being a history professor? <laughs> well, I was one uh, for a, a little oh, while. Okay. But, but around 2006... There was a, there had been a kind of an informal position at the Mises Institute of historian in residence, and it 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 was open, and so I put out some feelers. How would you like to have this guy? You know, so, uh, but but actually, it was kind of mutual. Like they were thinking about me, and I was thinking about them, and so I got an offer that I could come down and be at the Mises Institute in residence, and I could just work on what. I wanted to work on. And occasionally they would give me a project. Um, I wrote the forward to a new edition of Mises liberalism, for example, or there was a program at neighboring Auburn university for retirees to come and take courses at Auburn specifically for them. And so I did a course on us history at the Mises Institute for these just just ordinary retirees in, in Auburn. So sometimes they would give me projects to work on, but in general, they just trusted me from my years of working in this area. And so I, produced like a book a year while I was there. I was there for four years. It was a really, really productive time. In fact, so productive, I think back on it, I wonder, I, I say, ah, I could never do that. And then I realized, no, I did do it. Here are the books. It just seems exhausting thinking back on it today. Yeah, but I guess, you know, when you're, uh, when you're enjoying what you're doing, you just, uh, you don't get tired. You don't get tired if you're winning, basically. Yeah, true. You, you just keep enjoying producing it so it doesn't uh, annoy you. And so then, um, so then after the Mises Institute, you didn't go back to academia, right? No, I didn't. I guess I had gotten used to not dealing with bureaucracies and committee work and uh, rivalries within your department and PC and appeasing people. And I, I just didn't seem like something I wanted to do. And also, as the Internet kept developing, I felt like, in, at least implicitly, the or at least in in, in theory, the world was potentially my classroom. I could reach a huge number of people by teaching. And as, as you mentioned, I, because I was no longer collecting a salary and I was freelancing, we, we moved for family reasons and for the children, I had to figure out some way to make a living. And I, I 
was given a, a brilliant, basically million-dollar idea by a friend of mine who said, you have this big audience and following that you've developed through your books and YouTube videos and whatever. What are you doing with that following? And I realized I wasn't doing anything. And he said, no, 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 you can't, you can't do nothing. You have to, this is how you're going to make your living. If people like reading books that you write and they enjoy watching videos where you smash fallacies and stuff like that, well, why couldn't you develop courses in U.S. history where you're promising people that what they're going to learn in these courses is what they did not learn in school? And, and that's one of the things people liked about my books. Well, maybe they'd like it about courses. So I developed a full-blown kind of like dashboard university of courses with, on, on history and economics and other fields where you can consume these courses anytime you want, three o'clock in the morning if you want to. They're just sitting there waiting for you. So that was how my libertyclassroom.com got developed. So I was able to, you know, at that time I was, well, by 20, um, 2014, I would have my fifth child. But by the time I started Liberty Classroom, I had four daughters and I didn't really want to spend all my time doing public speaking, flying all over the country. That is one thing I'm good at. I am a good public speaker. But public speaking tears you away from the family a lot. And I just decided that was for the birds. I, yeah. I didn't want to do it as much. Or as my daughters got older, I would start taking them with me on these events. And we would have a nice little time, make a little vacation out of it. But this allowed me to work from home and be with my daughters and spend time with the family a lot more, a lot better. And also simultaneously reach a huge number of people. So it's it's been it was maybe one of the best decisions I ever made was starting that site. It was a lot of initial upfront work and a lot of initial upfront money. But since that time, it's been next year, it'll be 10 years since I created that thing. Yeah, it's absolutely inspiring. And it, it, it's inspired me to go ahead and do the same thing, basically. So thank you for that. Um, so I'm glad to hear that, 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 that I was some kind of inspiration for you. Because when I went to your website, you know, when we, I had you on the show a couple of times, I went to your website and I, I, you know, I found out about you teaching online and stuff like that. And you've, you've got your whole, you have a great following who they will just crawl over broken glass for you. Like you have all the ingredients you need. I, I thought to myself, doggone it, this is great. He's a, he is a model of what pe people should be doing. And so now if you say that I inspired you, I guess I was implicitly complimenting myself. But I think the way you've executed it has been so effective. Um, and, and I love that when, when Jordan Peterson was asking, all right, who's an Austrian economist I should talk to? The barrage of people <laughs> saying your name is a real vindication of, the, of your activity online. Yeah, to be fair, though, I think uh, you probably uh, do execution 10 times better than me, but I'm kind of taking a performance enhancing drugs uh, in this uh, competition, and that is Bitcoin. Bitcoin <laughs> is kind of the wind in my sails. Um, so I really, I think, you know, my execution has been uh, far uh, below par. Um, but uh, my book, The Bitcoin Standard, um, became quite successful beyond my imagination and a lot of people were reading it so a lot of people just keep coming to my twitter and to my website and uh, i'm uh, trying my best to, as you say like it's it's it, it's a no-brainer if 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 your your business model usually is you do those things uh, in the analog 
um, meat space where you're trying to teach and uh, write, well, you could do it with 1,000x the productivity if you do it online. The world is your classroom. There's a much bigger audience, and there's a um, much, uh, you know, the the time you spend getting in uh, taxis and airports and uh, flying around is time that you can double, triple, quadruple your output, and then you can um, spread it to many, many, many multiples of the cl- of the number of uh, students. You know, when you're at the university, you deal with 20 students, 50 students, 200 students a semester maximum. Um, it's a very limited scope for how much you can influence them, but then when you do it online, and because it is more productive, it is also uh, more economically rewarding. Uh, it's, it's just, it just naturally follows. It. And that's the kind of thing that you learn from learning Austrian economics that yeah you if if people enjoy what you're doing then you know that's that that's your market signal right there telling you that, uh, that they want more of it and you should be out there doing it and doing more of it and that's it's it's you know for all the struggles we have these days sometimes important videos get taken down and people get deplatformed even with even acknowledging all those problems it still has been unbelievably liberating experience for me to be able to use this medium to, as I say, reach a lot of people to, to make my living. And I don't have to deal with any boss either. I don't have to worry that he's going to make some unreasonable demand of me all of a sudden. Uh, I don't have to worry about mandates. I, I am in command of my own destiny and, and you can't put a price tag on that. And thankfully I don't have to put a price tag on it because making my own in my own destiny I, I make way, way, way more than I ever did in academia. So it works out well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is this is something that the internet really um, introduces that wasn't uh, the case up until um, the internet came about. And I think not just the internet came about, I think it wasn't the case up until really the last 10 years or so. Before then, um, if you wanted to be an intellectual, you had to be reliant on these centralized institutions. You couldn't just be an authority if you didn't have, you know, the the, the establishment seal of approval. Whether it came from um, academic institutions, you were at one of the top universities, so you'd ticked all of the uh, boxes for political correctness and, um, you know, ideological status conformity. But also, you needed to have. Um, or you know you could have had like the the kind of uh, you know mainstream media um, acceptance which gives you the platform, but it was very difficult to be a successful intellectual um, independent of that. You couldn't get uh, interest in your book. You couldn't get on TV. You couldn't get on newspapers. You couldn't get into universities. Your books were very hard to market. But the internet just gets around that, and it allows you to be not just you know an author, but also. Uh, an, uh, a teacher and, a, a, and and you can run your own university online and that's I think I mean we're just beginning to see the tip of the iceberg of the um, I think the intellectual impact this is going to have on the world that we'd had up until very recently you know and it's it's really not just you know the internet it's the more recent kind of interactive social media internet particularly Twitter and Facebook and um, 
these platforms that have facilitated this kind of interactive experience where people start spending a lot of time online and learning and, and acquiring these experiences, it's really going to change the dynamic of how intellectuals have functioned because over the last century, being an intellectual was essentially, as, as you discuss in your work in many places, um, it was an, 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 uh, a, a status job. It was paid for by government and so it had to arrive at the conclusions that were um, suitable to government. And now, uh, because of the internet, you're witnessing an entire new class of intellectual that uh, goes directly to consumer and doesn't need the seal of approval of authority. And you're witnessing them um, dwarf the um, you know the, the official authority. Like you see it happening on the internet. That uh, yeah, the uh, mainstream economists have a lot more titles, but. They don't have uh, anywhere near the kind of interaction or uh, audience that um, Austrian economists get, I think, online. Without a doubt. And now these days, this platform Substack, has, I, which I don't use. I have my own mailing list that I've had for a long time. But that's where you find a lot of the, the thinkers you really find engaging and interesting you want to follow. You don't think... Gee, I wonder if that New York Times columnist has a regular newsletter. And it thought never crosses your mind. It's on Substack. It's all these independent people. And, of course, now the traditional channels of conveying information are finding their audience shrinking. So no matter what you try to do to silence people, something pops up uh, to, to give them another platform. Glenn Greenwald is doing a lot of his work on, over on Rumble, which is an alternative to YouTube. So it's these are growing pains the, the internet is still a fledgling thing and of course we have no precedent for this and so all of a sudden being faced with the prospect of being silenced for your opinions this is a brand new thing and there hasn't been a time yet for entrepreneurs to catch up with that but i feel like as as all it's going to take is a few really substantial content creators who find themselves deplatformed suddenly showing up on, on Odyssey or Rumble or something, and then before you know it, you're off to the races and you have a full-fledged alternative. So uh, it's still an, an amazing thing to be part of, and I, I just I just love every day. I turn on my computer, I write an email to my list of 80-plus thousand people, and nobody can stop me. And and, and, and by the way, even if the, the service stopped me, there are a million more, I, and, and I've always got the list saved. It's It's in a nuclear bunker. You know, with 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 you know, with the codes and everything, I I built something that can support me, and that there's really nothing they can do about it. It's it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's really fantastic. I um, this reminds me again, you know, execution. I started a mailing list and I started collecting names, but then um, I redesigned the website and forgot to give it a prominent place in the new website and. The mailing list is stalling. I need to start doing that. If you go to my website, you can find it on my contact page, safedean.com slash contact. Sign up to my mailing list, but I'm kind of neglecting it. I need to start getting more active about it. It's a great, it's, it's a great tool because it's platform independent. So even if you get your account delisted, you still have the mailing list saved. You can reach the same people from another account. And it's, um, it's very powerful. You know, you, you send, um, lots of text straight into somebody's inbox where they uh, get a lot of important things. So it's a, it's a very powerful tool. And I think it's just, yeah, well, the, in general, what the internet is doing is just, it's making so much more communication so much easier. 
and therefore um, really making it hard to suppress and um, you know commoditize and manufacture uh, consistent uh, opinion that goes along with what the state wants. Since you're saying that, I want to ask you something that I asked one of my guests recently. He's a professor at NYU, Mark Crispin Miller. He teaches a course on propaganda. So, of course, he's a very valuable scholar uh, at a time like this. And I I wonder what your thoughts are about this, because I said to him that it's like a double-edged sword, the, the Internet these days, because on the one hand, during COVID, I would not want to be confined just to the three standard television channels we had in 1967. I would not want to rely entirely on the Washington Post and the New York Times or my local paper. And so the Internet has allowed dissident voices a place to speak, even if it's a shrinking one. I've been able to get a lot of information and a lot of perspectives that would have been excluded from the mainstream had there been no Internet. That's the good. But the other side is the propaganda in favor of all the things that the states around the world have been doing has been public has 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 been pushed out into the ether by means of the internet so that all over the world we see people wearing masks and we we we're hearing about social distancing and we're getting the same uniform message everywhere in every nook and cranny of society they've used the internet to overwhelm us with propaganda so i wonder on on net in this situation has the internet been a force for on net good or has it actually just been weaponized by states around the world to promote their fear-mongering propaganda? What is your opinion on that? Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. It was probably one of the kind of uh, biggest letdowns and disappointments for me just to witness how the uh, tools of propaganda f- transferred from TV to um, Twitter and Facebook. Like, It was pretty incredible. You know, 2020 was the year in which your Twitter started uh, functioning in weird ways like there was the time in which the um, retweets the numbers of the retweets and the likes would uh, go down and uh, you know they'd go up and down and they'd keep uh, fluctuating when they were suppressing specific tweets and then there were tweets that they were promoting very clearly it's it, it was really shocking and I was uh, I admit like I was one of the people who was um, very optimistic about this aspect of it that this is it you know cnn is dead um all of these uh, traditional media outlets are dead and all of their ability to shape uh, people's minds and turn them into unthinking cattle it's <laughs> it, it's going to be gone with the internet and then uh, they absolutely showed me um how it's done on the internet it's and it's done very effectively um so you know people get promoted people get delisted uh, deboosted and um uh, get their accounts cancelled and so on yet still having said that you know think about the alternative of actually if we'd been in 1967 or 1981 how difficult it would have been for you to get any of the kind of uh, ideas on uh, on the COVID hysteria from any of the sources that have produced mail, you would have had to put a check in an envelope in the mail to request somebody's newsletter that you wouldn't have known about in the first place. So there's yeah. that. But then on the other hand, the other edge, a third edge of the sword is people could 
do school over Zoom, maybe not that effectively, but in principle, you could do school over Zoom, you could have meetings over Zoom, you could work over Zoom. Because we had Zoom, because the technology existed, it was possible for people to live these sheltered lives for a year and a half, two years. If that technology hadn't existed, I, I doubt people would have just said, well, come what may, I'm just going to, I'm just going to crawl into a corner in my house and not make any income. It was because we had the technology that made it possible to live like hermits that we wound up being told to live like hermits. If the, if it hadn't existed, maybe we would have True. learned earlier, well, you're just going to have to learn to cope with it. I wonder. I agree I'm, with I'm you. I've turned into the interviewer fact, here just for a minute, but just because I'm so curious. No, and <laughs> I'm going to one up you here quite dramatically and tell you that I've had the same thought about literacy as a technology. So we could say the same thing about the internet and social media, but really literacy, I think. Um, and, you know, in your work, you've written about the midwit, which I would plan to get into. Um, and I think um, the 2020 makes a strong case for um, mass literacy not being a good thing, being in fact a very dangerous thing, because I think uh, there's a class of people that are probably better off being illiterate and just receiving instruction um, via audio or uh, pictorial uh, instructions, you know, just getting clear manuals and uh, clear recordings of text about what to do. Because if they were illiterate, they wouldn't be able to uh, stuff their brains with extremely elaborate uh, levels and layers of propaganda that lead them to believing extremely sophisticated uh, nonsense, which is, you know, the kind of um, the people who have been very eager to take on the uh, facets of totalitarianism over the last year. Like, a lot of them are some of the people that, um, you know, they play intellectuals on the internet. <laughs> you think they've got functioning brains. Brains, you know, they use big words and they write books and they have an audience and uh, you listen to them and all that they do is their literacy is just a tool for them to um, receive propaganda and then to rationalize propaganda and communicate it to others. I wonder just how much better society would be if a lot of these people were not literate. I think, I'm, I mean, I'm kind of being um, a little... Um, uh, cheeky here, but uh, in a sense, we can see this happening. I, I think you know, with all technologies, the same thing happens with all technologies. Literacy or the internet is the same thing. Um, it, it changes everything, but at the same time, you know, we as human beings, we remain the same, and so we are the kind of. Uh, I've, I've yeah. often wondered about this. It's funny you say this because I am not of the opinion that the state has our welfare at heart. Right? It's it's it has its own agenda. So. Yet it, it, it consistently it pushes mass literacy. And now is that just because it cares so deeply for, for our ability to read you know, Aristotle's politics or something? And, and it's so funny also that, that women uh, and well, – well, actually, I should start that over again. I'll say not just women, but I'm, I think in particular people who tend to go to school board meetings, and a lot of them are, are moms. So I was thinking that like that, but who are always emphasizing how important education is, and you've got to get your education. We have to spend more on education. And then I look at them, well, what are they reading? You know, now they're out of school. What are they reading? If they're reading anything, it's some trashy novel they picked up at the convenience store. Like they're, they're not reading, uh, you know, Plato's Republic. Right? They're, they're not reading propositions from Wittgenstein. Right? They're, so what was the point? You know, why you have this gift of being able to 
comprehend the written word and you're going to either not use it or you're going to use it for something entirely pointless and at the same time you're going to jump up and down about how important education is when in your own life you obviously couldn't care less about it yeah that's very profound i mean it really it, it, it's echoing to an extent the debate about the internet and i think the debate about bitcoin that reading is an extremely sophisticated technology like you can just pack a few hundred grams of paper with tens of thousands of words and that can contain extremely complex ideas that could change somebody's uh, life for the better or for the worse. You know, just because you read it doesn't mean it's a good thing. You could be reading things that are destructive. You know, uh, Karl Marx's writings have destroyed the lives of tens of millions of people around the world. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, I could kind of sympathize with the idea that perhaps this is just not a technology that should be. You Just like, you know, not everybody should be driving a car. There are clear qualifications required and um, clear conditions in which you should be. And, you know, you shouldn't be drunk. You shouldn't be sick. You shouldn't be... Um, uh, you shouldn't have certain impediments toward driving a car. I think perhaps literacy might be one of these. Well, that's probably the most controversial avenue I've gone down in, in my <laughs> podcasting career is what we just said here. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we've still got plenty of time to uh, <laughs> Let's see that. if we can top that, right. <laughs> Let's see if we can top that. So I guess, you know, our, probably our best shot would be to uh, segue from this into the COVID hysteria where you've uh, produced an endless um, – stream of extremely powerful uh, material to uh, expose the kind of uh, unique lengths of absurdity that we have gone through over the last uh, couple of years. So you've written uh, the book, Your Facebook Friends Are Wrong About the Lockdown. And um, you've also given a great lecture called The Fact-Free COVID Dystopia which got pretty popular on YouTube, and then I think it was removed. Was that the case? One of them was removed. I think that one's still up. Um, I, I had a video called The COVID Cult, and that one just went berserk. I mean, between Facebook and YouTube, it was at about a million and a half views until, until they finally took it down. And the reason they took it down, and I have been speaking and having videos on YouTube for as long as I can remember. I've never had one taken down. And it was taken down, they said, because of, you guessed it, medical misinformation. Well, what, what, what possible misinformation could there be in the talk? And, it was, and so I actually did an episode of the Tom Woods Show in which I reviewed the fact-checking against me. And it was things like I was claiming that, that there was very little acknowledgement of the collateral damages due to lockdowns uh, by the public health establishment. Now, I, I don't think that's even debatable. And the best they were able to come up with, oh, that's not true. In, in October, the World Health Organization – in October, <laughs> this thing started in March. And the best you can come up with is, well, seven months later, they were right on. Yeah, after they had destroyed the world, they suddenly realized this might be destructive. So it was inane nitpicking things like that that meant that no one was allowed to see it anymore. So I put it on you know, other platforms and I posted it on my website and stuff like that. I, my more recent ebook is called COVID Charts CNN Forgot. And I'm actually very happy with that title because I didn't want to make it be like liberal, conservative, libertarian, because this, this, there shouldn't be politics in this. But as soon as you say COVID charts CNN forgot, you know exactly what I'm talking about. These are charts that are difficult to reconcile with the, the scaremongering. So I have a little site, 
chartsdayforgot.com. And that's how you can get. It doesn't cost anything. I just give that away. And it, it takes a, it's hard, by the way, to put together a book of charts and have it look attractive. So there were a lot of work went into the went into that. And so I would so this is interesting both from the COVID standpoint and from what you and I were talking about before about marketing yourself and trying to, you know, make your way in the world online. I would in these talks that I gave on these topics promote one of these ebooks and say, look, I've got a lot more detail in here. Like I've got all the details on the ways lockdowns are deadly. I've got like nine or 10 specific areas that are just been, been devastating. And I would refer people to one of these ebooks. And so uh, th- given that these videos got a ton of views, I got a lot of people opting in for the ebook. I doubled my mailing list. It was all great. And the mailing list I send out, it's not meant to be just a COVID mailing list, but over the past couple of years, that's what it's turned out to be because that's what people are just craving. They want reliable information. They want the numbers. They want the graphs. They want to see with their own eyes what's going on. We can theorize all day long about what's going to stop the virus, but the numbers don't lie, and they, they want to see it. The, the problem that has arisen now is that before a video taking down the conventional wisdom on COVID has a chance to get traction, it's already been banned. And so that model for building up your your mailing list doesn't quite work anymore. I mean, you can post on these alternatives to YouTube, but the audience is just not as robust there just yet. But that is but that is something I did. So, for example, I would say, um, well, I, actually, you know what? I'm going to tell you one, one other thing I did. I actually made a website because I was tired of seeing all these charts that tell the story, but no one's seen the charts. So I made a, a website. I made a quiz out of it. So it's covidchartsquiz.com. You don't have to opt in or anything to, to go do it. You can just go do it. So COVID charts with an S quiz.com. And the idea of it is we'll take a chart and we'll say, all right, this is a chart from mid uh, 2021. And these are the numbers for where the, the Midwestern American states have been going in terms of their COVID results. Now, one of these states is Iowa and Iowa removed all its state level restrictions back in February. Can you pick out without any of these number these lines being labeled which line represents Iowa's numbers? And of course you can't because it's exactly the same as all the other places. You can't pick out Iowa, and that chart alone could be the whole website because if you can't pick out Iowa, then this was all for nothing. Because Iowa, if it really did drop all its state level restrictions, should be a basket case. And as a matter of fact, the Atlantic ran an article about Iowa called. Iowa, the state that doesn't care if you live or die. And yet the numbers kept on going down and down and down, and you cannot distinguish it from, oh, then I did another Midwestern thing. I said, uh, pick out where on this graph, because I'm not giving you any of the timelines, pick out where Thanksgiving is. That's where we have a lot of gatherings in people's homes. That's where there's supposed to be big outbreaks. And so after Thanksgiving, there should be a little period before uh, People finally start to experience hospitalization and death. So you should expect to see a bit of a spike shortly after Thanksgiving. So in light of that, look at the chart of all of the Midwestern states. And pick out where you think Thanksgiving is. And it's not anywhere where you would think it would be. And it's just that this kind of result is replicated over and over and over again. So again, it's covidchartswithanSquiz.com. What is the explanation for this? 
even I, I, I'm admitting I don't quite understand it, but that's really all I wanted the public health establishment to say is that we don't fully understand what's going on. It may be 10 years before we figure this whole thing out. We don't even know if what we're recommending to you is even doing any good. We, we don't know for sure. Just be honest, be humble, have some humility. That was what I wanted from them. Yeah, it's it's pretty startling. You look at these charts, and I, I it, it's quite a, a testament to the power of uh, brainwashing and the dangers of literacy. <laughs> Don't try literacy at home, kids. <laughs> Don't try it without proper adult supervision. That people can just, uh, you know, they're told on CNN and um, on Twitter and on Facebook that... Um, you know, uh, if, if you implement this new kind of voodoo, then things will get better. You know, the virus gods will laugh down on us and uh, spare us death and suffering and carnage. And there's no amount of evidence that can shake somebody's faith in that because it doesn't matter. There, there's no kind of... Um, there's no kind of congruence with reality that is required for this faith to continue because it's just, um, you know, you could, as you do, as you mentioned, you know, the example of Iowa, you show them, all right, well, this is what these genocidal maniacs in Iowa decided to do to their people by letting them, uh, you know, live normally. And there we see nothing different. Like how 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 difficult would it be to fake Iowa's numbers so that it would uh, match Illinois and look exactly like Illinois? It's very difficult to be able to rig this and uh, fake it to make the graphs look like each other. It's very difficult to imagine that it's a coincidence that they look like each other, uh, and that you know um, things would have been so much worse in Iowa that we end up with the same numbers as Illinois and the same uh, shape to the curve. And then you see these with the regional curves. You know, the whole region does the same thing. And yet, yeah, and, and so, like, the the onus to believe in the effectiveness of these interventions is that you're basically saying, yes, these things are effective, and if they weren't used, things would have been so much worse. But the fact that they were used has made... Iowa indistinguishable from all of the rest of its neighbors. It's it's incredible. And then you'll get things like uh, you try to talk about the, the um, reasonable success Sweden has had. I mean, Sweden is 56th in terms of death rate, 56th in the world. Now, we were told that by June of 2020, the imperial model said if they didn't have a full lockdown, they'd have 96,000 deaths by June of 2020. They had 4,000, so that was off by a factor of 24. And so then you try and say, I mean, and remember, the, the way people were screaming about Sweden, Sweden should be number one in the world, shouldn't it? I mean, it should be at least in the top five. They need to explain. Of course, they'll, no one will ever call them and count on it. Why they would it be 56? To. Why wouldn't it be three or four or five? If it's 56, then there was no point to any of it. And sometimes you bring this up and they'll say, well, Sweden is more sparsely populated. But, you know, the same people who say that are the same people who said everybody in Iowa would die if they didn't have lockdown. But Iowa is also yeah. sparsely populated. When Iowa lifted its restrictions – the hysterics weren't saying, oh, don't worry, everybody. It'll be fine. They're sparsely populated. They don't even need the restrictions. Exactly. So they're inconsistent from one country and place to another. Whatever needs to be said to keep the panic going is what they'll say. 
Yeah, and it's a, it's a, that's a great example, which is the, how these rationalizations only appear after the thing invalidated what they had predicted would happen. Like, you knew Iowa was sparsely populated beforehand. Um, one of my favorite was there, was, there was a guy I remember on Twitter who was uh, repeating something about the fact, well, um, there's something about a Swedish uh, genetic mutation that makes them uh, somehow magically less susceptible uh, to being damaged by this virus. Well, why wasn't anybody saying that this was the case beforehand? It's amazing, you know. You, you'd think the approach that would, uh, you know, the, the read a scientific approach would be well, you know, let's let everybody, you know, as everybody does what they think is best, we can then compare and see what happens. We can then see if it's actually Swedish genetics that are saving you from uh, COVID, because let's say, you know, uh, Swedish descendants in Minneapolis are living in somewhat similar weather with similar genes to the Swedes of Sweden. And if they're witnessing worse rates, then maybe the genes... uh, then maybe the genes don't matter. If they're witnessing similar magical protection, then maybe, yes, your genetic therapy plan is good. And then we know that Swedish people are good to go. You know, they don't need to engage in any of this nonsense. Um, maybe, you know, well, maybe if Iowa is sparsely populated, then places with the population density of Iowa don't need to engage in all this insanity. They can just get on with their life. But no, the, the, everybody has to follow everything all of the facets of the entire cult you know everything from the masks to the hand washing to the um, just all of the rituals that make you a decent person in the 21st century well let me let me jump in and say about because uh, i've been following this so closely since the beginning another place they were screaming about from the beginning by april of 2020 they, the and, and when i say they i'm talking about the, the people i i like the term the lizard people because they that just sums up the establishment around the world, the lizard people. The lizard people were all up in arms that Japan, Tokyo in particular, was not locking down hard enough. They were issuing recommendations and this and that, but they weren't really doing a hard lockdown. And I, at one point in my newsletter, I compiled some of the headlines about how, you know, Japan's going to get it good and hard or too little, too late, whatever. And then Japan has, I don't know, what is it, 150 per million or whatever. I mean, some crazy, insanely low rate. And so then we got, well, you know, the Japanese, they, they wash their hands a lot and they, they, uh, they wear masks and whatever. But as you would say, we knew that before. We knew that in April of 2020. You knew that then. So why didn't you say, oh, they're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. They're going to be fine. So they had to come up. The excuses had to be excuses drawn from the cult. It had to be masks because what else could it be? There, there can't be any other. It must be masks. It must be this or that. Or they weren't gathering in crowds. You can see photographs of the Japanese subway system. These people are packed in like sardines through this thing. So, again, all we're asking is for you to say, you know what? It, we would love to say that the virus is just cartoonish. And if you do this, you'll stay safe. And if you do that, you'll, but it turns out that there are too many counterexamples in the world for that to be the simple answer. So we're going to continue to gather as much information as we can, and we'll let you know what we find. Now, of course, that is not what they want to say. The public health establishment, which is ignored most of the time, they're issuing statements about whether, you know, they're the ones who come out with the food pyramid in the U.S. telling you you need to have 11 servings of grain a day. These are people we just ignore all the time, right? Most of the advice, they just nobody pays any attention to it at all. Or don't eat eggs or don't eat red meat, and then they change their minds. This, we just, this is their time to shine. 
They are not going to yeah. give this up. <laughs> if it's the last thing they do, they're going to hang on to this thing like grim death. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the fiat standard and the Bitcoin standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Absolutely. Yeah, there's an entire class of uh, society that basically is uh, thriving from this, which is people that have always had the problem of not having a uh, life that meets their expectations from life. You know, their job is not important enough and... Um, the world doesn't respect them enough. People don't listen to them enough. People don't care about them enough. Their own family, their own friends. And now this is your chance to just go on this moral crusade and then you get to tell everybody what to do at all times. It's like those busybodies have just united to take over the planet from all of the happy, productive people, basically. It's... it's it's uh, and, and It gives it's, them uh, meaning. It gives them fulfillment. It's It, it makes... and. It's you're able to say that you're saving lives and being heroic while doing, and I mean the word literally, literally here, literally nothing. By sitting in your house, you are a hero. Okay, well, this is the I only mean, chance no, they'll like ever you, get. To be fair, like to be a hero, you have to also be haranguing people on Twitter. Haranguing people, yes. Haranguing. <laughs> Good point. But it's not quite <laughs> nothing. Like this is this is how you um, get your. Uh, this is how you earn your stripes in this war uh, yeah. of good against yeah. evil. You're out there telling all of those evil people who don't believe in Anthony Fauci and the World Health Organization, um, who don't believe in those people, that uh, you should listen to those people. You know, Why wouldn't you just listen to the science? The science is just one guy, and this is what the guy <laughs> is saying. Why do you want to make it so complicated? <laughs> I love the science is just one guy. <laughs> how hard can this be? Just listen to what he says. I know, like it's 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 it, it's just the scientific method. You listen to the one guy appointed by the government that benefits from this. It's very simple. <laughs> and incidentally, I just the other day, it hasn't aired yet, but I actually interviewed Robert F. Kennedy Jr. for the Tom Woods Show, and he uh -huh. has a brand new book, uh, very critical of Dr. Fauci. And he said, you know, there's something about this man that has made him very. Teflon, no stick over, over the years, that no matter what he does wrong, 
he just escapes unscathed. And he says he has a very avuncular manner. He dresses very impressively and he speaks in a very authoritative sounding tone, which can intimidate some people. He says, but half the time when you listen to what he's saying in that tone, it's all nonsensical or self-contradictory or makes no sense. And it, it reminded me, and I told him this example of, um, I think it was Leslie Stahl. It was some 60 Minutes reporter interviewing Alan Greenspan, the former Federal Reserve chairman. And, and they were going through excerpts from his congressional testimony and hearings and stuff. And he was saying things that obviously they were words. We all knew these words, but they didn't mean anything when put side by side. But everyone in the room felt like, well, he's the expert. So we're listening to some expert testimony. And he admitted to this reporter, he used a phrase called syntax destruction to refer to what he would do, that he would just speak nonsense and uh, sometimes, and nobody called him on it. It was just nonsensical. It, it reminds me of what Eisenhower said once uh, when they, one of his aides did not want him to speak about a particular topic. And if it gets raised by the press, uh, you just got to not talk about it. And Eisenhower said, don't worry, if, if they bring that up, I'll just confuse them. And so it seems like this is a longstanding method that these these people use. And because there is this extreme deference to authority that has been drilled, at least into Americans' heads, but I think also I'm hearing this also being true of quite a few Asian countries, like in the Philippines, I'm told, at least in the U.S., we have a, a minority of very well-informed people who are trying to resist this. In the Philippines, just to name an example, I'm told there is no resistance. There is nothing like that. Everybody just does what they're told. That does tremendous damage, whether it's monetary policy or Fauci or whatever else. The thought is that the expert, if they have a degree, then you have to shut up and listen to them. And now if other people with a degree disagree with them, well, I don't know, beep, bop, boop, I've been told that this is the expert I should listen to. I mean, it is. Well, these guys have debunked on Snopes.com always. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Snopes turns yeah, out to always... run by some creep after all these years. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting how in, um, you know, the, the, the bar that you have to clear, the, the onus of proof is so different for when you're regurgitating government propaganda versus when yeah, you're Yeah, and, and by, the way, so... by the way, speaking of that, we, we, we keep hearing stories about the devastation that the supply chain problems and the lockdowns have had on the developing world to the point where you have millions of people in a food emergency where they could be suffering malnutrition or death from hunger. And we're the ones on whom the burden is placed to say that maybe we shouldn't do this. You would think people placing millions of people in danger of starvation, that the burden would be on them. And yet we live in such a clown world that we, you and I have to prove that maybe it's not a good thing to do that to people in the developing world. Yeah, it's what's what's really insane about it is this idea that you need to prove that you have a good case for um, basically asking that these people get to make the choice themselves if they would rather stay home or you know starve at home or take the risk of going outside and contracting this supposedly massively uh, lethal virus, which um, is basically not a problem for most people. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, the, <laughs> like, it, it's this monomaniac thought, and we've we've had this discussion about with this author of the book, um, uh, Paul Freiters, who discusses it as just a, a case of mass 
uh, mass hysteria and mass psychosis where uh, everything else loses importance. You know, all the other things that you could care about in life are just now completely uh, inconsequential. The only thing is we need to bring down the number of people who are going to die from the virus. And all other considerations at this point are just uh, completely gone. People don't think about opportunity costs. People don't understand the concept of there's a real cost to it. You know, if you want to lock people at home, all right, they might not contract your virus. If we assume that your voodoo is correct and that, you know, you can just stop the spread that way, well, there's going to be a cost. Now, is that cost worth it? Is staying home worth it? Well, if you work from Zoom, then probably it is for you because there's very little uh, loss when you do your work from Zoom. But for many people, it's a loss of their livelihood. And it could mean, you know, you lose, you don't have enough food on your table. It could mean that you can't make your house payments and you lose your house and you live on the street. It can mean very devastating things for all kinds of different people who might be willing to take their risks. I mean, really, if you're in your 20s, 30s, and 40s and in decent shape, you're basically not going to suffer serious consequences from this illness. It's it's you have to you, you have to weigh that risk versus the risk of financial ruin, and that's just become completely impossible in most people's mind. It's astonishing. It's astonishing the depth of economic ignorance that people just don't think this is an even valid choice for people to be able to make for themselves. No, you know the government just decides what needs to be done. Yeah, and also the idea that the experts should just be listened to. There's no expert who can tell you what your life priority should be. That's that, that's a category mistake to expect that from yes. an expert. And likewise, which of these experts, whose whose you know degrees are pointed to all the time as evidence of why we should listen to them, which one of them took a class on? how to balance collateral damages from lockdowns against any progress you might make against a virus. Of course, there is no such class. And, and one reason that there's no such class is that nobody ever recommended lockdowns. They were always said to be a bad idea. So you have just as good an opinion on this as Dr. Fauci or anybody else. They have no particular insight into this question uh, because no one's taught them anything about it. You have to, you have to think about it. You have to think about what you value, and you have to use common sense and say, well, probably there'll be more suicides. Probably there'll be more, um, there'll be missed screenings for various diseases. There'll be people with preventable uh, uh, ailments that could probably wind up dying under a lockdown regime. And you can just go on and on and on. Just think about it. Common sense. Think, of the, think of the effects on children who will be devastated by this and, and on and on and on. You could, you could fill it in yourself. You don't need to wait for an expert because the experts have no unique insight into this question. And, and also, I guess I thought people enjoyed their lives more than I guess they, they really do. You would think that a normal person would say, well, geez, if, if, if I'm going to be indefinitely in my house, is there any chance that maybe we're overreacting? I mean, maybe I should look around and see if there's anybody who dissents from this. And if there is, I'm going to see if that person has a good point. You would think people would do that because they value their life. They enjoy doing things. And it shocks me how little curiosity they've had. Oh, well, this one guy says I got to stay in the house. So I guess I guess I guess I'll just do it. What? You're not even going to fight. You're not even going to look. Yeah, it's truly it's truly astonishing. And it's um, it's <laughs> it's it's incredible to watch. You know, people like you just put out day after day, week after week of all of these just 
undeniable uh, facts that cannot be reconciled with all of these uh, dictates of the experts and yet people continue to believe in them and it's as you said you know there's, there's there is no other expert on my own life and yet people have completely um, delegated the aspect of what I should decide for others which is just insane because they you might think all right well I don't know enough about virology or I don't know enough about um, climate or economics or monetary policy to make those decisions for myself so I trust the experts <laughs> you're just making the decision but you have you you've made the decision in which expert you trust so you may as well understand that you are making the decision and that there is no alternative for you but to think about this like it's it's it, this is kind of the dangerous uh the dangerous thing that comes with um you know mass literacy it's this idea that all right well then i can just read and then i'll see what the people who know how to write are saying and then they will be the ones that are correct. It's just like such an easy at attack vector on people's brains that you outsource your thinking ability to people who have titles. And then life is just about an attempt. You know, your life is just a matter of who manages to get the most inspiring expert ahead of you, uh, in front of you. And then that's that's your life. That's your calling. That's your lot. That's why you came onto this world. That's why your mom spent nine months being pregnant to bring you onto this world to follow the instructions of the first guy with the uh, right credentials uh, to be flashed in front of your screen for you to just spend your life following them. Well, look, I've come to the conclusion. That, well, I'll say this. Um, this professor, um, uh, Martin Koldorf at Harvard Medical School, he's been one of the dissenting voices on COVID. And, uh, and I like him and, and he's great. And he's gone from being, when I would first have him on the show, it would be, well, you know, uh, Dr. Fauci is an expert in his particular field, but blah, 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 blah. And now it's like Fauci's a disaster. I mean, he's, I've watched him radicalize and that makes me, that makes me happy. <laughs> he tells me, Koldorf, that a majority of infectious disease epidemiologists uh, did not favor the just the mass lockdown that they favored a more targeted approach where you would try to make special provision for people who were particularly at risk but otherwise let everybody else go about their lives he says that he said i mean that's those are people i talk to every day infectious disease epidemiologists and they that was their view now that may well be and that would be great if that were the case but let's just say then Assuming, stipulating for the sake of argument that he's right, at the very least, we can say that there is a very loud minority of epidemiologists who, I don't want to say they're mentally ill, but it seems to attract quacks and hypochondriacs and I don't know what, because I think it was the Washington Post that did a survey of a, a bunch of epidemiologists and asked them, which of these following things are you willing to do in the age of COVID? And by the even by the summer of 2020, long after we knew, uh, you don't have to worry about crazy disinfecting everything. It's not it's not spreading through surfaces. That's not anything you need to worry about. One third of the epidemiologists polled were afraid to check their own mail because they thought they'd get COVID from their mail. So you know, after a while, you know, I mean, if, at the beginning of this thing, I thought, okay, well, we have some experts who are pretty you know, who are saying something different and they need to be, you know, we need to listen to them. And I do want to listen to the Martin Koldorfs of the world, but I didn't realize that some of the people in this field, 
I think they may just be twisted. I mean, there may there's something we that's not normal. You're afraid to check your mail. Your mail. You think the you think the virus is going to jump off the mail and you're going to get it that way. These are these are the ones we're we're supposed to be listening to. I think there might be something wrong with them. And then then I I saw um, Michael Osterholm, who is an expert on influenza, been studying it for forty years, and he was temporarily a Biden administration advisor on COVID. Now he occasionally has uttered a truth here and there. Like, for example, he says that the masks most people are wearing don't do anything. They're completely pointless. Uh, these masks most people have on, it's like you're in a submarine and you're going to close three out of your five windows and think that the water's not going to get in. Like So the, these universal masking, he was not convinced of. Okay. But he also said recently that in terms of our understanding of viruses and how they transmit, he said, let's be honest, we are still in uh, the Stone Age when it comes to that. Uh, we don't know as much as we think we do. And I think this experience we've lived through is ample evidence of that. Because you'll recall, I mean, well, I followed the, the U.S. case very closely when they opened up massive outdoor sporting events. Dr. Fauci was saying, well, I don't know. I wouldn't advise that. Nothing, nothing happened as a result of it. There, nothing was traced to that. No problem. Well, maybe there's something cartoonish away in their understanding of all this. I don't know. Again, I'm not claiming I have all the answers. I'm just saying I'm looking at the charts, and it looks like we may have ruined a lot of people's lives for no reason. That That's that's where I am. Yeah, and it looks like if there was any justice in the world, we'd ruin the livelihoods of all epidemiologists. <laughs> like, I think it's, yeah. it's, it's impossible to come away with the idea that this is a discipline that tries to look – at the data and tries and understands the world. This is just a bunch of propaganda delivered from high up above. Um, and I think, um, you know, I, I, I've seen Kuldruff, I think he's probably he, him and um, this other guy who was in a New York-based university. He has a Polish name, Kurt something, I forget the name. He's been canceled from the internet and he lost his job. So he may as well not exist anymore. He spoke out early on. And he's just basically been cancelled. Um, and Kuldroff um, is harder to cancel since he's at uh, Harvard. Yeah. And you could also say Sunitra uh, Gupta at uh, Oxford, I think. She's also been an epidemiologist who's uh, been not completely unhinged. Um, yeah. So you could look at these and say, all right, well, you know, there's bad epidemiology and there's good epidemiologists and uh, kind of like there's good economists and bad economists. But I think I'm, I'd go a little bit further. I'd make the case that um, uh, epidemiology is not like economics. Epidemiology is like macroeconomics. It's the pseudoscience aspect of economics. It's like the, it's it, 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 it in the same way that all macroeconomists are um, basically charlatans. You have to be a charlatan to be an epidemiologist. If you think diseases have to function uh, based on aggregate numbers. I th just think the entire founding premise of the field is nonsensical. The idea that, um, all right, well, there's a disease and we need to figure out what this disease's R0 is. And I, like, I, I, I've been thinking about this as a, for a while as a topic for a debate. I'd like to get an epidemiologist and debate them on the proposition that epidemiology is harmful for humanity. Um, because all of the information that comes out of it is 
at best useless, but most likely extremely harmful. So let's imagine an alternative reality in which all the world's epidemiologists were engaged in doing something actually useful. You know, they had real jobs producing things of value for humanity, and nobody studied epidemiology. And this whole uh, virus situation happened, and we didn't have a single virologist, uh, single epidemiologist to give us their opinion and their models. So we wouldn't have had models, we wouldn't have had the panic. And now, what would we have missed? So like, what actionable information would you have missed out on because of the uninvention of the field of epidemiology? So there's all these estimates about how many people are going to die in your country. None of these estimates has matched with reality. You know, there are all these projections of the curve. It's going to go up at this rate or the R0 is going to go at that rate. And then you look at the reality of the curves, you know, there's there's basically nobody who could have um, predicted what things looked like. We've had several waves and then the numbers are um, all over the place. You can't really fit them with one of these neat theories where, you know, epidemiologists sat, just sat there and said, all right, it's an R0 of this much, so we run it through the population and this is what we're going to be getting. It had nothing to do with reality. And in fact, I think it's 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 not just irrelevant, it's really dangerous because um, it distracts people from doing the things that could actually work. That's the dangerous thing about the conceit of epidemiology, wherein we know what works to prevent um, bad outcomes for this virus, and it is what works to prevent bad outcomes from everything in life. It prevents bad outcomes from you, uh, for you from you know sitting on your couch or driving a car or just engaging in your daily life. Um, you know, you eat well, you take care of your health, you take responsibility for your health. And you're going to do much better job protecting yourself than any of the hysterical stress that you put yourself through during the um, during the, the hysteria that these epidemiologists have unleashed. So you start thinking about numbers, and you start thinking about you know eighty thousand deaths next weekend, and this many people are going to die, and this many people are going to contract it, and this many people are going to be maimed by it, and you have all these. Uh, massive uh, simulations that you're looking at and the more attention you dedicate to this and the more the more you end up thinking of this as if it's just some kind of uh, you know uh, uh, just a pre-programmed um, thing that's going to rip through society and you see a lot of the kind of socialist calculation uh, conceit here you know the, it's a central planner's idea of how diseases work you know that we're going to all sign up to be getting this because of the r0 and it's gonna it's it's gonna decimate the population based on mathematical averages with no regard for the micro which is the individual it's it's very similar to the way in which macroeconomics functions and i think if we just did not have this entire field of knowledge the world would be better off because people start seeing oh well people are getting sick in china with this weird new illness you know, maybe I should watch what I eat. Maybe I should start getting more sunshine. Maybe I should start getting more exercise. And if more people did that rather than hyperventilate and do all of this, um, you know, religious rituals, I think a lot more people's lives would have been better off. Plus, of course, there's the early treatment, which all of the epidemiologists insist on dismissing because they don't make money. They're not sponsored by people who sell early treatments, which don't involve profitability because these are... Um, 
cheap uh, drugs that are generic and don't have uh, high margins, they get paid from the manufacturers of the specialized patented drugs. And so their incentive is to scare you and their incentive is to tell you there are no alternatives but going for our sponsors. That's really, really actively destructive. And I think it's 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 beyond just a misuse of a field. I think it's just a field that renders itself for being... Uh, abused in this way because it's all built on shaky nonsensical foundations i'm i i i find that very very compelling because i've been having the same sorts of thoughts that there's something wrong with the with the discipline and of course uh if if you if you believe these things then you're going to have a, you don't necessarily have to have authoritarian impulses but they do seem to follow that since i know the trajectory of of this uh, disease, let's say, then of course it follows that because I love mankind, I have to intervene to, to stop its its spread. And as you say, what what actionable piece of information would we have been missing in the absence of this field? Well, I mean, let's think of what were the pieces of actionable information. It's wearing a mask and social distancing and and all you know all this other stuff and lockdown and, and that and that stuff. But as we've seen, um, you can you can measure mobility because we have you know, people are walking around with smartphones so we can there are there's Google mobility data and we can observe well when people in this state started moving around a lot and, and they they weren't engaged in as much isolation or social distancing uh, is that does that correlate with worse results or better and there's there's it, it, the scatter plots are just all over the place there is no they're not telling any story at all you look at these numbers they're entirely random. They shouldn't be entirely random if any of this advice worked. And of course, at this point now, some some ambitious libertarian who wants to establish himself in the movement as being the go-to guy on a particular subject should look into public health in general beyond COVID, but should just look into the idea of public health, the actual implementation of the ideas of so-called public health experts uh, and see if the if see if this has all been a grift the whole the whole time also. Yeah, I think um, I I definitely think that is the case. I think it's a big massive grift uh, as a field because it exists. Uh, it's it, it's uh, it's perfectly tailored for authoritarianism and it's perfectly tailored for capture by pharmaceutical companies. So I think it's just out there. And imagine what a dangerous of- combination that is extremely powerful companies and people with sociopathic tendencies. Wow. That's yes. quite a mix. Yes. And I think, you know, epidemiology is kind of the, um, it is the intellectual cover that allows them to um, consummate their marriage and uh, <laughs> bring about this, uh, this ugly dystopia in which we live where um, I mean, it's again you, you, the giveaway is the fact that it's a science that relies on model. If your science relies on modeling, your science is not going to make it. It's uh, it's it's a bunch of nonsense. It's fiat nonsense. It exists only because uh, financing of science functions through the fiat spigots. So it, it's not a science that would exist on a free market because nobody would pay for this hysteria. But when you have the financing of science that's coming from above, it becomes possible for these kind of um, pseudosciences to flourish because you just you're selling your output to the government that is paying, not to the reader who wants to learn. And the government 
has interests that are similar, uh, that are not uh, identical to those of the recipient of the propaganda. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, it's, um, another another aspect to keep in mind here is that there is, with all of these sciences, there is a very strong incentive in the fiat world to go toward uh, panicking. You have to always um, be chicken little in order to make it in fiat academia because there's no cost to panic. There's no cost to being wrong. So yeah. going around and saying, you know, being the chicken little who says, you know, the dams are going to break, uh, the wolf is going to come and eat us, uh, the virus is going to destroy civilization, um, cow farts are going to boil the oceans. There's zero downside for making any of these claims. You just go around, you make the claim, and, you know, if it doesn't come true, then it's because of you uh, warning or because it's, you know, it's coming true soon. And you just keep milking this forever. You can always keep milking. You can always be the hero who's fighting it. And you always require more funding. And that's the only way to get more funding in fiat. Like if you, if you, if you write your report on um, cow farts in the ocean and you conclude that, yep, oceans are big enough that cow farts are not going to boil them. All right, well, then that's the end of your research career. <laughs> what else are you going to work on, you know? Now you need to go find some other scare to try and uh, write about. But if you find, you know, your initial findings suggest that, oh, no, more cows are going to boil the oceans and then we'll be living in a big uh, sauna planet, <laughs> then, you know, you need more funding. So we, we've been selecting over decades in all of these fields for these kinds of uh, sensationist, hysterical, um, fear-mongering conclusions. So I think that's a big part of it. That's why these people constantly come up with models that suggest catastrophe. There are no models that come up and say, yeah, yeah, well, you know what? Things aren't too bad. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah, it's – I. I I've been thinking that from the start. And again, I'm, I'm just, I don't have a degree in their fields, but I can read a chart. I can look at what numbers are saying and I can listen to what they're telling me. And I, I remember, I've pointed this out a number of times. They had Andy Slavitt, who's one of the worst of these people on MSNBC. And they asked him, shouldn't Florida be doing worse than it is? given that they're not really doing any of this stuff and they have a very old population and stuff like that, shouldn't they be doing much worse? Um, and he admitted that he had no explanation. He said, there are some things about this virus that are a little bit beyond our ability to understand. We're going to need you to stay home anyway, even though we don't yeah, understand. Yeah, exactly. It. Yeah, we're going to need you to stay home anyway, even though we just admitted that we don't understand why people who aren't staying home aren't suffering any problems. And he just so he just goes on to say, but but we know that what works and that is social distancing and whatever, all the other things. But how do you, quote, know that if by your own admission, you can't explain why people who ignore that seem to be just as good as people who observe it faithfully? How do we, quote, know that? Who's the we? Stop saying we. You think you know that. I don't I don't think we know that. But yeah, but now they're all selling yeah. books right now. That's the other thing is that they all want to sell a book about the hysteria. Um, obviously, someday there'll be a, a full full blown movie about Fauci. We know that. And it'll be the story of the the really, really smart guy who was unfortunately put upon by stupid rubes who wouldn't listen to science. The thing writes itself. We already know that. 
The consolation is that when the Disney people made a documentary about Fauci, it just tanked. Like just the critics loved it, of course. The general public hated it and in general did not go see it. So that's something. Yeah. It's actually been quite remarkable, um, you know, for all of the opinion polls and the mainstream news and the kind of noise that you see on Twitter, which is heavily manipulated um, by the censorship and boosting and deboosting. And yet, when you look at things like movies and uh, books, which uh, particularly books, you know, you look at the best-selling books on the topic, like all of these, all of these, um, you know, team hysteria actors, all of these uh, people get on TV all the time, and they all promote all of their identically idiotic books, which all uh, basically repeat the same thing, which is, you know, virus is bad, and I am a savior, and you need to stay home and listen to me and engage in the rituals, and then maybe you will be saved. All of these books are identical, and they just still don't don't get that much of uh, interest, interest from people who read, but you look at the actually popular books, on these topics, you know, they're by people like uh, Alex Bernson, who's been uh, wiped off of Twitter, and Robert F. Kennedy, whom you mentioned, whose opinions very, very differ, very widely differ from uh, the ones that uh, you would expect are the dominant mainstream voice. I think it's the experts just have a much bigger um, sense of self-worth and a much bigger bullhorn, but. Uh, <laughs> Behind them, I think there's growing number of people that are waking up to just how ridiculous a lot of this is. Yeah, and and they are they're paper tigers. The fact that we can't recall a, an example of a genuine debate between a Fauci supporter and a dissident if in the medical field on television almost tells you all you need to know. And the fact that Sanjay Gupta goes on Joe Rogan. Now Joe Rogan's a smart guy, but he doesn't have one of these fancy degrees. He goes on Joe Rogan and he can't hold his own. Imagine if he went up against Koldorf or Bhattacharya or any of the other great people we have. He can't even go up against Joe Rogan without completely folding. He absolutely folded in that interview. He was conceding things left and right. They can't function other than in that bubble, which is why they never emerge from it. Yeah, it's pretty incredible how none of these people has to ever um, really justify their ideas. It's a, it's, a, it's a great advertisement for the nature of the fiat system, which I describe in my new book, The Fiat Standard, that everything is dictated by fiat. And so if you're on the expert class, you don't have to ever establish competence. Um, you don't have to justify yourself. You don't have to explain things to people. You know, somebody like Fauci, it's 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 very remarkable how he talks with the tone and then also Bill Gates. I think those two people in particular are really good at this, which is they talk in a tone of informing you of what you're going to do. They're not even telling you that you, I'm going to make you do this. And they're not saying, you know, that I've decided this. They're just saying you're going to do this and then you're going to be doing that. Completely shortcutting, shortcutting your, your brain's uh, agency. You know, it's not, you don't have any choice in the matter. And here, I'm here to tell you what's going to go down. And, um, you know, <laughs> it's been 
two years now, and Fauci has not faced a single hostile question from a single reporter anywhere. It's been just hand-picked softballs from um, basically the corporate um, prostitute press, which is um, just out there doing what people in power want. It's it's astonishing. And all they have to do is they don't even have to ask him you know, the kinds of things that a Robert F. Kennedy would ask him. They just have to ask him things like, well, you said that once we hit 50% vaccinated, um, we shouldn't have these outbreaks anymore. And yet there are states that are extremely vaccinated that are having the biggest outbreaks of the whole pandemic. Why do you think that is? The ob- yeah. most obvious question in the world. Why do you think you were wrong about that prediction about uh, 50% and there won't be any more outbreaks? What do you think is happening? What did you not know at the time you said that, that you know now? I'd love to hear the answer, but we're never going to get it because no one will ask it. Yeah, and you know he's changed his mind on masks. He's changed his um, mind on vaccines. He initially said 100% effective. Now he's equivocating and making all kinds of different claims. But you know, uh, fiat means never having to explain yourself, never having to say you're sorry, never having to be wrong. You know, you're just correct by fiat because uh, people in authority um, decree that you are the one that we need to listen to. Unfortunately, that's our, that's where we are. And, 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 and uh, as this is another reason that, well, here's the thing, because I was going to say that the education system is what encourages people to have this, this uh, blind trust and authority. But see, here was something that, that actually genuinely puzzled me about what happened in 2020. You had a mass hysteria to close down the schools and then just to keep them closed and keep them closed, and keep them closed. But the schools really are the incubator of conformity, and they want that. The state wants that conformity, and yet they also were were clamoring for keeping the schools closed in a way that was bound to increase the homeschooling population, and indeed it has. The homeschooling population in the United States has increased substantially. I was wondering why they did that. I mean, they. I don't actually believe that most of our authority figures seriously bought into the panic. I I don't think they really, maybe at the very, very beginning when there were a lot of unknowns, but I was wondering, they're shooting themselves in the foot. This is the institution that takes the independent thought out of people's brains. They can't afford to keep this closed. And if they were fanatical about it, so that, that I found to be a genuine puzzle. Yeah. Um, I guess I mean, again, I think, you know, it's, uh, overall, I tend to think it's just a confluence of interests and um, interest groups that push in certain directions and end up pushing things in certain ways rather than one kind of, um, um, you know, top-down orchestrated um, uh, thing that's driving all of these issues. So I think here... I, I, I really do think the element of hysteria, I think I, I probably disagree with you that I think the vast majority of people did believe it. I think, um, yes, even even the opportunists, I think, genuinely did believe, um, did, did fall for the hysteria. Like this was uh, everybody who's um, easily impressionable, which is the vast majority of people, went along with this. They couldn't just... Uh, they couldn't just... They, they they couldn't even to themselves just focus on the opportunist aspect. I think if you look at people in the West, 
everywhere people was really genuinely scared. I think those videos from China really worked. The modeling by the experts worked. The um, hysteria from the World Health Organization worked. And I think the, his, the, the, the hysteria took on a life of its own. So there's, yeah, there are clearly special interests that are pushing for the hysteria in certain directions. Um, perhaps it was the Chinese Communist Party pushing, pushing for this for certain reasons. Uh, perhaps it was pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies, uh, different interests pushed in different ways. But I think uh, around early March, this hysteria took on a life of its own. And um, everybody really went and believed it. And, the, and social media and the internet magnified it. You know, the, the, it was just uh, pouring fire on um, on this. And then it's just, it, it drove people mad and they doubled down and went insane with the way things that they did back then. And for most of them, you know, they don't have the kind of, most people don't have the kind of maturity that you need in order to come to terms with this and accept that you're wrong. And so they're just doubling down. So I think schools were, um, I think it was just collateral damage for this hysteria that people just really believed their own bullshit so much. And they thought, yeah, well, you know what? Uh, Zoom is going to be good enough. We just need to save lives. And uh, like, yeah, I, if this was purely about status propaganda, then yeah, keeping them in class um, would be better. But having said that, it's not entirely uh, innocent because, you know, they're not just going to make those kids get homeschooled. A lot of those kids are going to stay home and they're going to be helping alleviate inflationary pressure by not consuming uh, gasoline to transport them to the school and by uh, staying home and not moving around. But um, the, a lot of the education is going to be centralized and it's going to be, uh, I think we're going to see more of this, you know, particularly Windows and Bill Gates and um, basically... Um, standardizing curricula and standardizing lectures for students all over the world so that government propaganda will come straight into your house so that taking your kids out of school is not going to save them. Well, I think the whole issue of schools helped to take a lot of normies who really probably wouldn't have dissented from a Dr. Fauci under ordinary circumstances and woke them up and radicalized them because first they realized, all right, this kind of schooling is not any good for my kid. And I can't, I can't supervise my kids. I'm supposed to be working all day. And I see that in other States kids are in school with no ill effects. So why can't we have that in my state? I think that, you know, even though I don't want to defend the public school system, the arguments people had over schooling I think did open the eyes of some parents that I can't actually trust the sort of people I thought I used to be able to trust. And I have to fight back against the very sorts of people I thought I could trust. So I am hopeful that in, that in the present, the present moment, now I'm not making a prediction. I have no guarantees, but I'm hopeful that there is a slight turning of the tide here. I mean, obviously there's still tremendous evil going on in the world. And it's going to take a long time to overturn it. But I forget now who it was who, who broke this down. I, I should remember the name, but there was some, maybe it's Berenson, actually, who said that 30% of America was just going to do whatever the CDC tells them. And it doesn't matter how absurd it is. And there's another 30% that 
over their dead body are they going to listen to the CDC? They they realize it's all political and, and nonsensical. But that 40 percent, there are 40 percent of people who kind of are, you know, they wear the mask because other people are wearing the mask. And if people took them off, they'd be the first one to, to follow suit. And these are people who might actually be reachable. The people in that 30 percent who are going to listen to Dr. Fauci, even now, even after all the damage and all the contradictory statements and all the nonsense that you almost can't reach them. You, there's nothing you can do. But that 40 percent, and I think that 40 percent may be turning. The, the, uh, there's some interesting polling data about independence and how they feel about Biden and the pandemic and shutdowns and masks. And so I'm hopeful that, especially now that they're saying, now you have to get the booster. There are places where you have to get the booster. They're, they're going to make it hard for you to live your life, even without just without the booster. New York um, is, is now saying that in order to participate in society, if you're age five and up, you have to get the vaccine. So you, so that means they can't have international tourism anymore because you can't even get, even if you wanted to, you couldn't get the vaccine for five-year-olds in other countries. We're seeing that being introduced in Chicago also, where they're going to introduce, you have to be, uh, also Boston just the other day, uh, you have to be vaccinated, proof, proof of vaccination to get into basic things. And they're even saying in Boston that by March or so, that's going to extend to five-year-olds. That's going to cut off international tourism for, for Boston also. And it will also severely reduce domestic tourism. It severely undercuts the clientele for basically every business. I don't, you know, now it's true. I didn't think this craziness could go on this long, but that kind of thing. I don't see I don't see how businesses survive it and I don't see how it just persists forever and you do now see some vaccinated people saying this is completely out of hand now I have to get the booster in order to be able to do anything um, this is not what I was promised and and now we're having lockdowns on top of it I saw a reddit thread from Canada and just a, not a libertarian thread just a flat out plain jane canadian thread about some lockdown somewhere. And they're all saying, look, this is, uh, we've had it. You are sucking away the very last bits of joy anyone can expect to get in this world. And we've done everything you asked of us. This is ridiculous. I think there is indication of somewhat of a turn, but where are the political figures who will unambiguously stand up in favor of this side of things? Uh, I, th there aren't nearly as many as there ought to be, but if there were, they might not win, it's true, but there are a lot of people prepared to flock to them right now, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, the obvious one is DeSantis in Florida, who's been an absolute miracle in um, oh, thank goodness for him. resisting this. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I've, I've been to Florida recently, and it's, it's a very welcome change from the rest of the world. Um, and they're not <laughs> witnessing mass death. But, uh, yeah, the, the, the political aspect of capitalizing on this seems to be, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's been almost two years and I still think it's still not, it still does not look to be a political winner for somebody to take it on. It doesn't look like there's going to be a, uh, you know, an anti-hysteria populist politician who's going to uh, win on this, but it is, it is becoming more likely with every day. Yeah, but on it's, the other hand, we had a very interesting, um, you know, in, in Virginia, the, the governor who won, he wasn't like a, a DeSantis. But he beat the Democrat, and it was quite clear that he was not going to be as mandate crazy as that Democrat. New Jersey, New Jersey is a very blue state, 
and their governor almost got voted out, which was very surprising. And then now the guy who's who's the head of the the uh, uh, the state legislature, he's a he's just a random guy who who defeated the the political machine Democrat. He's a random guy who just paid the filing fee to run, didn't really do anything, raised about $120, spent most of it at Waffle House, did nothing to campaign, and he won. So I think there are little indications. And yeah, it's true that as on a national level, it might not, people might not be ready, but there are states where it's brewing. And the great thing about DeSantis is that he, he doesn't just do the right thing, which would be good enough, but he is great at being in command of the science and the literature and the scholarly work. He knows it and he can refer to it. And he is, um, he's punchy. He is pugilistic, let's say, right? He fights back. When the media goes after him, he immediately hits back or he gets a hostile question from a reporter. He turns it around on them and asks and starts asking them questions. Okay. Do you know what the circumstances were in that County that why we had to do it that way? Do you, do you know any of the background? And he'll make them squirm in their seat. He said, well, I'll tell it to you. Here's what you should have known if you'd researched this before you asked me the question. He takes nothing from anybody. He is, I mean, no, I don't say that I agree with him on every issue, but he is the kind of guy I have wished would exist, who, who knows the stuff and won't take anything from anybody and calls out bad actors and rallies the disenfranchised around the country to him. People who feel like they are voiceless, he stands up and ridicules the people who are uh, taking their voices away, and and he's done a tremendous job for that reason. I agree, and I, I still think, though, I think the um, you know the common theme to all of the seminars we have in this podcast is, um, you know, if things are good, it's because of Bitcoin. If things are bad, if we see anything that's bad, then. Well, at least Bitcoin fixes this. And I think really the solution to all of these things is Bitcoin. As I was saying earlier, it was like with my, you know, with my, uh, with my uh, internet presence, I'm taking the performance enhancement drugs that is Bitcoin. I think the liberty case, the liberty cause around the world is going to be massively boosted by Bitcoin. And this is a, this is a great example of it. Um, Bitcoin fixes the COVID hysteria on so many levels. First level is, you know, on a direct level, People who become financially independent with Bitcoin can't be canceled financially. So it's going to allow more people to create more content and produce more research um, and get paid and not get, um, uh, you know, blacklisted from uh, from being able to monetize themselves, which because nobody can blacklist you from Bitcoin. And then on the other hand, um, perhaps more importantly and more long term, it's going to defund the uh, money printer that is financing all of these fiat sciences. You know, all of these silly pseudosciences like epidemiology and all of the insanity that they um, produce is a result of the fact that these people are massively subsidized by government money. And Bitcoin takes all of that away. So I think, you know, in the medium term, in the short term, it does look pretty bleak. The world just keeps getting worse. And um, governments are utilizing technologies in ways that are just extremely dangerous. And we're only just beginning to understand the depths of um, how devastating what they're doing is. But I think 
you know, with every new invention, with every new technological um, invention, there's the good side of it and there's the bad side of it. And uh, what Bitcoin is going to do, um, the good side of it is going to um, massively liberate people all over the world uh, from this kind of insanity. And I think it's... Well, uh, it, the the it's, key it's, it's, thing is that it, it helps us build something parallel to the, the, the clown show that we live in now. I mean, we obviously need to be building a lot of parallel institutions. I mean, you and I teach online. We don't teach in traditional academic settings, but that doesn't make, make the information that we convey any less important or effective, uh, if, you know, effectively transmitted. Uh, so we're building for our audiences, a parallel institution there. And likewise, it seems like, uh, so obviously money is the ultimate institution for which we need a parallel so that we can, we can secede monetarily and in other ways from the, from a regime that's given us what we see around us today. It's hard work to build uh, parallel institutions, but honestly, you know, there ain't enough room for both of us in this town seems to be the lesson that we're drawing from this. I don't, I don't want to be part of a society with people who would so cavalierly throw people's lives away like this or who would, without even bothering to look into it, would just blindly accept a Fauci or any of the other people, or for that matter, uh, a Jerome Powell or an Alan Greenspan. Um, I, I want parallel institutions where people like us who care about freedom and property and independence can live a satisfying life without feeling threatened by uh, a self-appointed expert class. And if Bitcoin can contribute to that, which I think it can, then it is the right thing at the right time. I certainly hope so. I certainly think so. Um, and I think we're seeing the uh, uh, budding shoots of the Bitcoin-based world. I think we're just uh, beginning to see um, the, this world emerge around it. And I think it's um, you know it's 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 very telling that uh, and I said this when I was discussing uh, the same issue with uh, Jeff Dice. It's it's quite remarkable how the Mises Institute and uh, people who are into proper Austrian economics almost all um, coalesced around um, uh, you know the non-hysterical interpretation of what's going on. Um, you know, people in their own personal lives might have had different uh, risk uh, approaches to this, uh, different approaches to this risk. You know, some people might have um, decided to. Um, use masks, uh, take medications. Um, different people will have tried different things. But if you've studied Austrian economics, if you're familiar with it, you pretty much almost always came to the conclusion that this is something that should be left to individuals and governments shouldn't be locking people at home. They shouldn't be shutting the businesses down. And um, it's uh, on one hand, it's encouraging and heartening that uh, – we see this and, uh, you know, th th there is a sane way of, um, there is a sane way of understanding how the world actually works. And um, it's, uh, it's good because you're witnessing this kind of new coalition emerge around these uh, issues of people who just are not uh, bound by to use, to copy a phrase of yours, you know, the, the uh, what is it called? The, uh, what is it, your favorite phrase on the card? The three oh, the, by five uh, index card. index card of allowable opinion, yeah. 
Yes, the index card of allowable opinion. On many more issues, people who are outside those index cards end up coalescing around um, these main ideas. Uh, so monetary freedom, intellectual freedom, and uh, now increasingly medical freedom as well. And I think we're witnessing uh, the, the internet is giving this little small world wings, basically, because now you know we can communicate. People can communicate their uh, heretical ideas about those things, but they can also finance it. They can also um, monetize it, and they can do that independently of all fiat financial institutions. So I think this uh, this space has a lot of room to grow into the future. Well, as I say, that it it's the it, it could well be the right technology at the right time because, I mean, how how long has it been in existence? I mean, just less my my daughters lived in a world without Bitcoin, and that's that's how young it is, and yet it so happens that it has emerged at the exact moment <laughs> when uh, you know freedom loving people around the world need it the most. Agreed. Agreed. Well, on that very positive note, um, our time is coming up to an end. Thank you so very much for um, your time, for joining us, for the inspiration, and for everything that you do on Austrian economics and on um, educating the world about liberty and about uh, the coronavirus uh, hysteria. My pleasure, Safe. Thanks very much for what you do as well. Cheers. Have a good day.